Have you ever wondered if your psychologist or counselor experiences the same struggles as you? After all, we are all human. And just how many have lived experience of non-suicidal self-injury, or NSSI for short? Let's say you're a psychologist or counselor with lived experience. What biases should you keep in mind when treating or supervising someone who also has lived experience? And how is this different if you don't have lived experience of self-injury, but your client, patient, or even supervisee does? To answer these questions, and to discuss how we can include individuals with lived experience of self-injury in teaching and research, as well as how those with lived experience can find ways to participate in teaching and research, I am joined today from Texas Tech University by Dr. Sarah Victor. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS, or simply IISS. Dr. Sarah Victor is a psychologist and an assistant professor at Texas Tech University. She earned her bachelor's in psychology from Stanford University and her PhD in clinical psychology from the University of British Columbia. Her research is focused on understanding and supporting people who struggle with non-suicidal self-injury and suicide. She uses novel methods such as ecological momentary assessment to gather data on how people's experiences, thoughts, and behaviors change over brief periods of time in effort to develop ways to support people in times of crisis. Dr. Victor is particularly interested in understanding NSSI and suicide in groups known to be at a highest risk, such as people leaving inpatient psychiatric care and members of the LGBTQ community. Additionally, Dr. Victor is interested in how the profession of psychology can better support people with lived experience of mental health conditions who want to join the field. I'm really excited about our topic today. We'll be focusing on self-injury among psychologists. Thank you, Dr. Victor, for being here today and providing your expertise about a topic very few people know about, talk about, or address. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to get to have this conversation and talk a little bit about the work that we've been doing and where the field can go from here. To start things off, how did you first become interested in researching self-injury? That's a great question and one that I've had different answers to over time. The answer that I commonly give is true, which is that I started work in a psychology research lab as an undergraduate student. And that research lab was focused on understanding depression, bipolar disorder, and social anxiety disorder. And I was doing a lot of interviews with people who struggled with those things. And non-suicidal self-injury would come up a lot. And there wasn't a great way to kind of capture it or assess it. It didn't seem to be included in a lot of the measures and things that we were researching. And so I started to do more of my own separate research, trying to understand why that was and where the state of the field was. That's all accurate and true. The additional context that I've only started to share more recently is that I had my own personal experiences with non-suicidal self-injury as a teenager and young adult. So the kind of overlap of my experiences and my work in a research lab really contributed to my understanding of how limited our knowledge was in the field and how frustrating it was to feel like there wasn't research that spoke to my own experiences. And so both of those things, I think, really together shaped my interest and desire to go into the field. Well, thank you for sharing that. I actually did not know that. That's my first time hearing that and wasn't sure if that was related at all to some of the questions I was going to ask here. So that really provides additional context yeah. to this interview. So thank you for sharing your personal experience. It's been a really interesting trajectory in sharing that. You know, I think like a lot of people in the field, I was very strongly cautioned against sharing that information as I was applying to graduate school, going through graduate school. And the longer that I stayed in the field and felt more comfortable and more secure in my own positions, the more I started to have those conversations with individual people, kind of exploring how that level of disclosure would work. And thankfully, I'm now in a position where, you know, I feel like I have the job security and the professional security that I can share it on a podcast and not worry about really significant ramifications. But that's a very different feeling than, you know, five or six years ago, where the, I might have this conversation with an individual person at a conference or an individual friend in a grad program, but definitely wouldn't have it in a more public space. 
and I think I had met you like five, six years ago at that yeah. point. And so the fact that you're sharing now, hopefully it's very inspiring and inspirational for other people listening that might want to pursue a career in psychology. Yeah. One of the things that has been really fascinating in my own experiences is both professionally talking to other people in the field and in my actual research work collecting data is just how common these experiences are, NSSI specifically, but also just mental health conditions more broadly. And every time I have a conversation about this with people, I hear about other people's experiences and hear that, oh, well, I didn't feel comfortable sharing that or that's not something I've talked about before. We're actually working on a project right now where we've collected a very large sample, several thousand people within psychology, psychology faculty and graduate students. Preliminary data, this is hot off the presses, literally right. ran, ran the analyses a few days ago. Over 80% of our sample of faculty and graduate students report some lived experience of mental health problems either pre or post graduate training. That's, you know, huge, 80%, yeah. right? And that's honestly not that far off from what we would expect from the general population, but psychology, especially in clinical counseling school psychology, which is the sample that we recruited from, there's a lot of discomfort talking about those things or acknowledging that those experiences exist. And so I'm really excited to have the data to actually put out there and say, this is not just people back channel communicating with each other to say that they've had these experiences, but the data really bear this out, that these experiences are extremely common. You know, non-suicidal self-injury, I think we had an over 10% prevalence rate specifically for NSSI. I was actually going to ask about that yeah. 10%. Is that lifetime prevalence or yes. current, like past year? Lifetime prevalence. So we asked people if they were currently struggling with a condition or a mental health concern or had struggled in the past. We didn't define what current meant for people. Most of those were past rather than current, but definitely at well over 10%. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. So four out of five mental health professionals, including graduate students and faculty and clinicians, report having their own experiences mm -hmm. with mental health conditions. And then another 10% report specifically non-suicidal self-injury experiences. Yes. And we found that roughly half of our participants report doing some kind of research that's specifically tied to their experiences, whether that's a mental health condition or some other aspect of their identity. So we're really excited to start digging into those data and getting those out there in, in a more uh, kind of publicly available way. This is super exciting. So this really provides context for our interview today and not necessarily changes my plans for our interview, but this new information about your research and then also about your personal disclosure is, is not anything that I had anticipated in our interview. And I think it's going to be that much more important and that much more valuable for people listening and even myself to understand this new research that you're doing. Yeah, I'm really excited to get to talk about it. I'm happy to talk about my experiences and, you know, whatever direction you think would make the most sense for us to go. If we don't have the chance to talk about your personal experiences, I would definitely want to have you back in the future to be able to share your sure. life story with it. Sure. Thank you. Yeah, to do that. <laughs> well, I guess I'll go into some of my pre-planned questions and sure. we can see where that takes us. You had just published a paper with Dr. Stephen Lewis, who we actually interviewed in episode five when talking about self-injury in the internet, and also Dr. Jennifer Muhlenkamp, who we interviewed in episode two in distinguishing non-suicidal self-injury from suicide. And in your paper, you wrote about psychologists with lived experience of self-injury. So we have this new context now. Well, my question was going to be, how did you come to decide to write this paper? And you kind of answered that a little bit. Is there anything more that you'd like to add to that? Yeah, you know, I think, um, so Stephen Lewis is someone who I've really looked up to professionally for a variety of reasons and got to know him a little bit better through our work on the IFSS executive board over the last several years. And there was a call for papers for this particular journal where they were interested in lived experience among psychologists. And just the conversations I'd had with Stephen about kind of my own thoughts about disclosure and when and how to navigate that. And some of the conversations I've had with Jennifer as well just really felt like this is a perfect place for us to have these conversations and to have this context actually be published somewhere. And really, it, it came together quite fluidly and quite quickly. I think we all had a lot of really interesting thoughts about it. And we wanted to make sure that it focused not only on 
people with lived experience and advice for them, but also people without lived experience, because I think a lot of times there's a focus among individuals who are marginalized in whatever kind of context about what you can do to change your odds of success. And Mm -hmm. so I think one of the important things was to say, it's not just about what people with lived experience choose to do, but it's also about what people without lived experience choose to do and how they convey their openness or lack thereof around accepting these experiences in in the academy and in psychological practice. Is this the first study looking at prevalence rates of self-injury among psychologists? As far as I'm aware, yes. There's been relatively limited research looking at mental health problems broadly in psychologists, but it tends to be focused on professional impairment, Mm. very much from the lens of are you ethically able to practice and less about kind of what experiences inform people's interests and training. And most of the prior research, A, is quite dated at this point, and B, focuses on clinical providers, people who are licensed. And we know that in graduate school settings, a lot of those faculty are not actually practicing outside of their role as, as academics, as researchers. And so we wanted to find out the people who are doing the training, who are setting up what's acceptable, not acceptable, who are setting kind of the cultural norms as people go through graduate school, what are those people's experiences and and how might those look different from practicing providers? We did find that there are certainly some people who experienced impairment related to mental health conditions, but that was actually by far the less common experience than people reporting that they had never had any kind of professional impairment from their mental health conditions, whether it was pre or post training. So simply having an experience of a mental health condition or non-suicidal self-injury does not impair someone's ability to be a good clinician or researcher. Correct. You know, we know that everybody comes into training with lots of different experiences that shape how we think about clinical practice, how we think about research. And that's true for people with and without lived experience. And so obviously it's important to consider how our experiences in either realm might impact our biases, our assumptions, our work. But what we're finding is that that's not uh, specific to people with, with a history of NSSI or a history of mental health conditions. That's something we really recommend everybody be thinking about. Absolutely. And thinking about self-injury specifically, what do you think makes disclosure of non-suicidal self-injury different than, say, disclosing other behaviors or other mental health difficulties? It's a really interesting intersection with some of the other literature around disclosure of mental health conditions more broadly. NSSI is in some ways concealable and in some ways not concealable. Often we talk about mental health conditions as being the term in the literature as a concealable stigmatized identity, something that is stigmatized but that you are able to hide. NSSI for some people is not concealable if they have visible scarring, for instance. And so there's this interesting dynamic there where in some cases people have to navigate disclosures that they might not have wanted to engage in at that time because something somebody became aware through another means. We also know that NSSI is very highly stigmatized, even among mental health professionals, and seems to even be more highly stigmatized than lots of other highly stigmatized mental health conditions like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, things like that. And I know uh, Dr. Ammerman, who I think did a, a podcast around kind of stigma and disclosure as well, has published some of this research highlighting that element. You know, I think in part because people, this is sort of my, my less expertise type opinion relative to Dr. Ammerman's focus, but people perceive NSSI as being something that the individual caused. And so I think sometimes there's more stigma or more judgment around this is something you did to yourself mm-hmm. versus other mental health concerns where they might perceive it to be genetic, biological, related to trauma, even though we know that NSSI is also related to lots of those other things. I think there's kind of an added layer of stigma there. I think this is really also important for me to keep in mind because over the past eight years where I am in Texas, well, I know you're in Texas too. Mm-hmm. I've trained somewhere around probably 350 pediatric medical residents at UT Southwestern wow. Medical Center here in Dallas and at Texas Children's Hospital in Houston in how to respond and address non-suicidal self-injury among adolescent patients. And I don't know how many of those residents that I meet with that I train have self-injured. 
the only other study that I'm familiar with was a 2014 study in Germany that found that of 714 German medical students, 14.3% had endorsed ever having self-injured and another 1.5% reported having attempted suicide at some point in their life. So I'm thinking about this not only in the residents that I meet with, but also the psychology trainees now that I supervise and do lectures with every year as well, that if 10% of those individuals may have self-injured, I need to be extra sensitive there. So I, I like where you're going with this and with your paper uh, with Stephen Lewis and Jennifer Muhlenkamp about NSSI among psychologists. Yeah, I really think that it's an important reminder for us that all of us as humans wear multiple hats, we have multiple roles, we have multiple experiences. And oftentimes in conversations in graduate training, you know, in conversations in clinical settings, there's this sort of distance between us being the professionals and them being the patients or clients. Mm -hmm. And it ignores this duality where in many cases people have been or are currently patients or clients <laughs> or have struggled with the same things that our patients and clients are struggling with. I actually teach graduate psychopathology to our first year doctoral students at Texas Tech. And one of the things that I've really tried to do as of day one in the syllabus is to identify that and to say, you know, we're going to talk about a lot of experiences in this class. And I don't know what all of your individual experiences are personally in terms of your family, friends, people you care about. So when we have these conversations, it's important to be thinking about would I want someone with a personal connection to this to hear what I just said about that thing. And that's something that I actually try to do more broadly is to think about would I be embarrassed to say what I'm about to say in front of someone with that experience? And if so, maybe pause and interrogate that and think about whether what I'm saying is the most accurate or empathetic thing that I could be reflecting. That self-awareness, that being able to know what we say, how how is it going to come across, that's really valuable for us to keep in mind. You talk about, and actually earlier, just a little bit ago, you had mentioned that you have recommendations for people with lived experience of self-injury as well as psychologists without lived experience of self-injury, and then kind of recommendations for both in general. And we've talked a little bit about stigma and biases. What are some biases that some psychologists or counselors with their own lived experience of self-injury might have? You just alluded to one when you when you sure. do a lecture, but what might be some others? Sure. So I think one of the really common biases, and this is true in so many different domains, not just NSSI, is this assumption that whatever our personal experience is will necessarily be similar to other people with similar difficulties, similar identities to what ours are. My own experience with self-injury, I had lots of different experiences with different providers, different family members, friends, things like that. But my experience is only my experience. Mm. And there in my clinical work, in my research, working with people with a history of NSSI, struggling with NSSI, I've learned that lots of people have experiences similar to mine, and lots of people have experiences that are wildly different <laughs> from my own experience, both in terms of relationships with treatment providers, as well as functions of NSSI, triggers, things like that. And so I think rec recognizing that you can draw on your own experience as one source of data, but that doesn't mean it's the only or the kind of uniform experience. I think there's also differences in terms of how we want to interpret results or how we want to kind of frame things. You know, one example that I think comes up a lot in NSSI is this myth that NSSI is done for kind of attention or to manipulate other people. And that's something that I found really, really hurtful <laughs> as a adolescent and young adult because that was not my experience. And that being said, there are some people who do disclose NSSI to seek care and comfort from other people. And so recognizing that even though that wasn't my experience, that doesn't mean that nobody feels that way, I think was, was an important thing for me and I think an important thing for people with lived experience broadly. What a great point. For those psychologists and counselors without lived experience of self-injury, we talked about some of the personal bias they might have. You've recommended before the importance of continuing education. I mean, we always recommend being educated on this topic, but where might these psychologists and counselors obtain continuing education about self-injury? I know you're in Texas Tech doing your training. I'm here in Dallas doing my training. Where might others get training in this? Yeah, well, there's 
a lot of really fantastic resources available. And I think certainly in the last 10 years, that has expanded dramatically. You know, I think back to being an undergraduate student in the early 2000s and what was available versus what we have now. So one, of course, is ISSS, the International Society for Study of Self-Injury, that has a really effective piece of information on their website around kind of a brief introduction to NSSI for people who might not know much about it. There's also SIOS, which is the Self-Injury Outreach and Support website, which I think is led by um, Stephen Lewis and Nancy Heath. There's the Cornell Research Program on Self-Injury and Recovery, which is led by Janice Whitlock. Um, And then there's also more books for people to read as well. One of the recent books that came out was Healing Self-Injury, which is focused on kind of supporting parents whose kids are struggling with self-injury. And then another thing for clinicians is to know that there are treatments that appear to be effective for NSSI. So one that's been much more extensively studied specifically in borderline personality disorder is dialectical behavior therapy or DBT. And then there's also more recent developed treatments like emotion regulation group therapy by Dr. Kim Grotz at the University of Toledo and treatment for self-injurious behaviors, uh, TSIB developed by Dr. Peggy Andover, who I think is also going to be on a podcast as well. Really fantastic work that's happening and very excited to see some of these newer treatments get disseminated into the community and be more available for people in in their local environments. Although now that everything is virtual with COVID, it's maybe a little easier to get some of that specialized treatment via video conferencing. Yeah, a lot of those that you recommended, those are my go-to recommendations as well. And our next episode uh, will likely be with Dr. Andover in the treatment for self-injurious behavior. And so we'll hear more about that. Awesome. Speaking of learning, one of the recommendations you give is being able to be prepared to learn about someone's self-injury experience. So how can we as psychologists, counselors, supervisors, and even researchers prepare to learn of someone's lived experience of self-injury? Yeah, so I can think of a few different recommendations, really thinking through our reactions ahead of time, what your sort of gut reaction would be and whether that is going to be helpful or unhelpful in the moment. One thing I really recommend people on both sides of that experience think about ahead of time is what the goal of that disclosure is. Is it to get some kind of practical assistance from the person? Like maybe you need a referral (laughs) to somebody who can help you, or maybe it's to get just validation and support and understanding. On the side of the person preparing to hear those disclosures, thinking about how you find that out, how you might ask the person what they need from you, and to think about your own boundaries and values and ability to offer those different things, depending on the context. So, you know, in my role as faculty, I work with students and trainees in colleagues and people at lots of different kind of different power dynamic levels related to me and in different contexts. So what I might be able to do to support a member of my lab might be different than what I'm able to do to support someone who found me on social media and makes a disclosure to me on Twitter. And so thinking through what I can offer, what I'm able to offer, what I'm going to be effective at offering, and then how I can connect people to resources if I'm not the right person for that. I think the overall principle that I try to follow is recognizing that it's about what the person making the disclosure wants or needs, not my own wants or needs. So sometimes you know, I might be curious to learn more about their experience or to ask more questions and thinking through, okay, am I asking those questions because of my own curiosity or am I asking those questions because it's going to help me get this person what it is that they're looking for? And a common question that people have is regarding asking about self-injury. So we're talking about preparing to learn. And I know parents wondering, is it okay, one, to ask my child if they self-injure or if we bring it back to psychologists, asking their client or their supervisee, if they're supervising a psychologist in training, is it okay to ask? And if so, when might be an appropriate time and when would be an inappropriate time? That's a really great and important distinction that asking one's child or asking one's friend or asking one's therapy client feels to me really different than asking someone that I have potentially power over, you know, or they're a supervisee or a student or something like that. And so Right off the bat, to make it very clear, asking someone about NSSI is not going to give them the idea to engage in NSSI. It's not going to increase their risk if they're not already struggling with it. And I think a lot of people are very, very hesitant to mention their experience with NSSI because they're concerned about stigma. They're concerned about overreactions. I think a lot of times 
there's a concern, well, what if people think that I'm suicidal when I'm not, and then kind of freak out and tell my parents or, you know, my parents get really upset and take me to the ER, that kind of a thing. So I think in those settings, if you're a parent who's concerned about your kid, ask. It's not going to hurt them. And if it's not the case that they're struggling with it, then you know. And then they know that you're a person who's interested and concerned about how they're doing so that if at some point in the future they're struggling or a friend is struggling, they know they can come to you. I think similarly in the context of a client-therapist relationship, if it's actually part of my basic intake discussions with people around if this is something you've struggled with in the past. And I also make it really clear in the informed consent process that somebody telling me about NSSI doesn't mean that I'm going to break confidentiality. It doesn't mean that I'm going to call the police. A lot of therapy consent forms have very broad language that says if you're at risk to yourself or others and NSSI, sometimes people don't know if that falls in that category. So I personally, you know, make that effort to explain that I'm only going to break your confidentiality if you tell me that you're going to engage in some kind of life-threatening harm and we can't come up with a way to keep you safe. You know, I think that when you have that conversation is going to depend on the person, on the context. Um, like I said, in my therapy experiences, I tend to do that right off the bat. For parents, I think certainly if you're noticing that your child is struggling, whether it's with anxiety, with sadness, irritability, certainly if you see any evidence, like you see injuries that aren't explained, I think those are all good reasons to ask. In a professional context with, you know, a supervisee or a student, it's harder for me to identify a clear time where I would ask. I think if there were some really strong indication that the person was struggling, I would ask more broadly about what that struggle looks like, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I probably wouldn't ask specifically about a past experience with NSSI unless it was something that they brought up with me. Yeah, I'm trying to think about when I might ask. I know I've never asked a supervisee their their own yeah. history, but it sounds like if, if it's in the context of a... Like a concern about their professional capacity at the moment. Yeah. You know? And I can think of times where I've worked with folks where I've been aware that something isn't going quite right in terms of how they're functioning professionally. And then I usually just open that up with a kind of broad conversation about here's what I've noticed. And I don't know why that is. There could be lots of different reasons why I'm noticing these issues. And I want you to know that I'm a person that you can talk to about whatever's going on so that I, whatever the situation is, I can help you get the support you need to be able to manage professionally and also personally. I like that. Here's what I've noticed. And I think Dr. Janice Whitlock in episode three used those exact terms as far as parents talking to their child and starting that conversation. Here's what I've noticed. And in the context of a supervisory relationship, that sounds like a great way to start the conversation. Yeah, I think it gives the person the space to share their own experiences without making assumptions about what that's like. Sometimes people are going through things that are totally different than what we think they're going through. And so you're starting from a place of this is what I've noticed. And then the person can't really challenge what you've noticed because that's your <laughs> experience versus saying, I think you're depressed or yeah. I think you're struggling with this. Then it be can become a more defensive, you know, how do you know that you don't know me, that kind of a thing. So I think just starting from this is my experience of how things have been going is a little, a little bit more just kind of supportive and neutral relative mm -hmm. to other types of conversations. Exactly. And I also liked your recommendation for clinicians about asking about the self-injurious behavior of their clients. Mm -hmm. It sounds like we, you and I both have a similar intake informed consent mm -hmm. conversation because when I talk about what are my limits to confidentiality, particularly with teenagers, adolescents that I'm working with, and I say, if there's any intention to harm yourself or someone else, and by that, I mean suicidal thoughts or homicidal thoughts. And so that's kind of the context that I put it in. And if non-suicidal self-injury is a part of that, they may ask, well, will you tell my parents about this? Well, usually the parents are already aware of the self-injury, and that's one reason they come to me to begin with, so it's a little bit easier, but I still will have that conversation where there are times where I might break confidentiality related to the non-suicidal self-injury and disclose to parents, but that's if there are a lot of other risk factors at play that increases the risk right. of acting on any suicidal thoughts. Right. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. You know, I think for each client, it's going to be different, and, and the way I frame it is to really say, the reason for breaking confidentiality is in a situation where 
we can't together come up with a way to keep you safe. And so, because this also comes up, I work a lot with people with suicidal thoughts, suicidal mm-hmm. behaviors. And so even saying to those people, if you tell me you're thinking about suicide, that doesn't mean I just automatically pick up the phone and call 911. That's something I can handle, we can work on together. The situation that requires me to break confidentiality is if you tell me, you know, I'm having these thoughts and I have this plan and I have these means and screw you, I'm not going to work with you on on figuring out a way to stay safe, for lack of a better description. And I've never had that situation, to be honest. I've only had one circumstance where we have ever had to contact emergency services, and that was with the agreement of the patient. So thankfully, that's worked out reasonably well for me so far. And I'm glad that, that we're having this conversation and that you ask and I ask, we're talking about preparing to learn because sometimes having that information, then there's that responsibility of what do we do with it. And so if we're prepared in advance to ask and how to respond, I think that can really go a long way in helping the individual. Yes, yes. You know, thinking about, okay, it's not just about asking It's about what am I going to do if someone says yes? Asking is important, obviously. But if someone says yes, and then you sort of sit there with like a deer in the headlight, that's not ideal either. So thinking through, okay, if someone says yes, what's the information I need to understand their experience? And I think both you and I have done work on this. I know the SOARS model that you've published for kind of med students in that very like nicely condensed package. (laughs) You know, we want to know about methods. We want to know about medical severity. We want to know about what's the function of the behavior. What What is this serving for you? And all of those things are critical to both safety planning and treatment in general. So I think becoming more familiar with some of those assessment strategies, some of those questions that you can ask, and to recognize therapists have different level of comfort with those experiences, different levels of training. If it's something that you don't feel comfortable working with, then it's your ethical responsibility to figure out how to get that person the care that they need, even if it's with somebody else. It's not okay to just say, well, I just don't know about that, so we're going to ignore it, um, which I think is sometimes the experience some clients have. I'm sure you're right, and that's incredibly unfortunate. I think some of the interviews of individuals with lived experience we have uh, lined up may have had some similar experiences there. Yeah. So we talked about preparing to ask and preparing mm-hmm. to learn and address our own biases. But then I like you talk about being prepared to be asked. So yeah. we as psychologists, we're sometimes asked by clients, patients about our own experiences with whatever challenge they're coming in with. Like, do you have kids? If so, how many? How old are they? <laughs> have you ever been high? <laughs> yeah. You know what it's like to be drunk, right? <laughs> or have you ever had depression, suicidal thoughts? And I like that you tackle this possibility that we could be asked about our own history with self-injury. How can we respond to this question in a way that's both helpful and appropriate? That's a really great one. And one that honestly, I didn't get a lot of training on in graduate school. And I had the same, I was actually my first practicum in graduate school was working with parents of kids with behavioral struggles, um, ADHD, oppositional defiant disorder. And I was a 24 year old single woman with no kids and thought, oh my gosh, why are these folks going to listen to me? Like I wouldn't listen to me, right? And what I found was actually those questions were less common than I anticipated, I think in part because folks just wanted help and recognized that even though I didn't have kids, I had training in how to support them and raising their kids. You know, I think preparing to be asked differs a little bit depending on whether you do or don't have your own lived experience, right? So for people who, I think in both cases, it's important to find out why the person's asking and kind of what what they're searching for in understanding the answer to that question. Does the person think that you don't have enough experience or that you don't understand them? What would your answer mean to that client if you said yes or no? And so sometimes you can actually reflect that back to the client to say, I'm curious, like, what would it mean if I said, no, I don't have kids versus I do have kids or something like that. And I think it's always a question of focusing on what's in the best interest of the client and the family that you're working with. So anytime I'm talking to someone with lived experience about disclosing their lived experience, I think it's really important to think through that very thoughtfully, consult with other people, especially if you're in training to consult with a supervisor about that, because you want to make sure that it's really focused on what's in the best interest of the client versus your own kind of desire to answer that. In terms of people without lived experience, I think it's 
also really important that people ask about why that question's being asked and what the client wants to know, and also to avoid being sort of defensive or dismissive of the question. I can think of times where people will say, oh, well, like, no, definitely not. That I've never had that experience. And that implies that there's something wrong about having that experience or that it's unreasonable to think that a therapist or a psychologist could have had that experience. Same as someone acts defensive, like, oh, no, definitely not. You know, it implies that that's, you're the client very different from the therapist. And we know from our empirical data that there are certainly therapists with those experiences. And even if you don't personally have that experience, you don't want to convey to the client that they're somehow wrong or less than yes yeah in a different category than you mm -hmm. i think that's one reason why we really need to be prepared to be asked and i'm not mm -hmm. sure i i have prepared myself as much being very self-aware and conscientious when being asked to not have a knee-jerk reaction to yeah. saying like you said oh no it's not you know like i would never do that or because it implies that we shouldn't or couldn't have lived experiences with self-injury and I think for folks with lived experience, one of the examples I think about is Dr. Marsha Linehan, who has talked publicly about her experience with borderline personality disorder and self-injury and suicidal behavior. And she has some visible scarring. And when she kind of went public with her experiences, she talked about experiences where clients would ask her about her scars or about her experiences. And her response was along the line, I'm, I'm not going to get the exact quote correct, but along the lines of, do you want to know if I've struggled to say that I've struggled? And so that's something also to think about in that disclosure piece that when clients are asking those questions, they may not actually be asking for you to sit down and tell them, well, I started engaging in this behavior at this age, and then I did this thing. Like, I think often what they're asking for is, do you understand what it's like to feel as cruddy as I feel right yeah. now? And so being able to reflect that effectively doesn't necessarily require sharing a ton of really personal information, but can just involve reflecting like, yes, I know what it is like to struggle. I think that's a valuable way to think about it. I really like that way because they're, what are they really asking? Mm -hmm. Have you struggled? Have you suffered? Yeah. Can you really understand what I'm going through? Yeah. Going back to our conversation about professionalism. Uh, so mm -hmm. we have a lot of listeners who have lived experience of self-injury and a lot of listeners who are mental health professionals that supervise students and trainees, some of whom, as we now know, based on your research, may have a history of self-injury. We talked a little bit about how the supervisor might be able to support their supervisee if the supervisee is actively self-injuring and struggling with their overall well-being. Yep. What should a supervisor do? We've, you've mentioned, I've noticed, that was the, the phrasing you used, but what should a supervisor do if they do have concern that the supervisee's difficulties with self-injury may be causing professional impairment and yeah. they're either unable or unwilling to seek medical or psychiatric help when it's actually needed? That's a really important thing to think about and I think can be really, really challenging. I think it's important to really focus on what your role in that specific relationship is. And I know this is tricky for, has, has been tricky for me because I really like working with graduate students. I remember what it was like to be a graduate student. I want to be supportive and I want to be encouraging. And I'm also their supervisor and I'm not their therapist, yeah. you know, and you shouldn't be <laughs> their therapist, right? And so trying to recognize, okay, my role here is not to treat this person. My role is to identify what they're struggling with and to get them connected to whatever care and supports they need, whether that's mental health care, whether that's taking a leave, whether that's a reduced client load, whether that's being particular about what types of clients with types of presenting problems you refer to that person for that particular time. You know, as a supervisor, oftentimes you're really well positioned to help connect people to care. Mm -hmm. You know, you often know about who the therapists are in the community that aren't affiliated with your program. I've done a lot of this in all the different cities I've lived in, kind of getting people referred to care. And so ultimately, I feel like my goal is to advocate for transparency between myself and the trainee so that I can know enough about what's going on to get them the support and help they need. The sort of additional layer there, though, is that you care about the well-being of your supervisee and you're also responsible for the care of your patients and clients, right? And so there can sometimes be that tension there where it's not necessarily the case that somebody who's struggling as a trainee is necessarily struggling in their clinical work, but it happens. And I think at that point, I would have a transparent conversation with my supervisee about my concerns in a similar way that I mentioned before to say, this is what I've noticed. 
this is what concerns me about what I've noticed. Have you noticed the same thing? Do you share my concerns? Um, or is this something that you feel very differently about? And then if we can come to a, an agreement, you know, that we both kind of agree that there's the same difficulties and what we can do to work around them, great. If there's a situation where my trainee says, I don't think any of that's a problem and I don't want to have this conversation with you or I'm not willing or able to, to change my behavior, then I think it has to maybe go to kind of that next step around, okay, I might have to make the decision that you're not going to, we're going to transfer the care of this client. And I haven't personally had that experience. I've, I've had experience of talking to trainees about things they've been struggling with and working with them together to kind of support them. I haven't had a situation where I've had to unilaterally make that decision, but it is something that I keep in the back of my mind. You know, if, if there's sort of an egregious situation, you know, the therapist isn't showing up for sessions or is doing something that's actively harmful in sessions. Like obviously then our role is different. But I think in general, you know, having those conversations and normalizing that part of our ethical practice is identifying when we are not in a position to provide ethical care. Sometimes that's related to mental health conditions. Sometimes that's related to expertise or competency or training. And our ethical codes say it's important for us to know when we're practicing within our scope of competence and to know if we're struggling with something that's impairing our practice. And so I think oftentimes for trainees, there's this perception of, oh gosh, if I'm struggling and I tell someone they're going to kick me out or I'm never going to be a psychologist, you know, but to say, actually, it's actually really great if you can recognize and come to me and say, hey, I'm working with this client and I'm out of my depth here. Like, I don't know. I need more support to give this client ethical care or something about this client's experience is just resonating too closely with me. And I don't think I'm being as effective with them as I could be. That actually signals to me as a supervisor, a level of insight and introspection that makes me much more positive about the person's ability to be a psychologist. The people I worry about are the folks that aren't thinking about those things and that aren't aware of the way that their own experiences are impacting their practice. So I think recognizing to trainees, like this is just a part of the process. This is a part of the experience. There are going to be times where you need, you know, you might need to take a step back even just temporarily because of something going on in your life. And that doesn't inherently mean that you can't be a psychologist. It just means we need to figure out what you need at this particular time. And I think that goes back to your earlier point about the personal bias of an individual, let's say in this case, a supervisee with their own lived experience of self-injury, treating a client or patient with a history of self-injury and assuming that they're going to be struggling the same way as them and they might not. And if the struggle with the supervisee is a little bit greater, being able to be self-aware and talk about that with a supervisor, hopefully the supervisor yeah. in these cases would be open to that and be able to guide that supervisee. Yeah, I think to have those conversations to be able to say, you know, here's my reaction to this client. And that's true across the board, whether that client has an experience that's similar to yours or not. The ability to take a step back and say, I'm having this reaction to this client and it would be helpful for me to check in with someone else about whether that that's my own stuff or whether that's, you know, maybe telling me something about how the client generally gets along with other people, things like that. You know, the clients, I can say anecdotally, the clients where I've had the most personal reaction to them are actually not the clients that have struggles similar to mine. Maybe that's just random flukes of who I've worked with. But, you know, I think that's important to keep in mind across the board. These are some things that I haven't necessarily fully thought through because I haven't, to my knowledge, maybe I have supervised a trainee who has their own lived experience of self-injury. And if it were to the come to the point where they would need support, I'm thinking about my conversation with Dr. Ammerman in episode seven, where she's talking about tangible aid isn't mm -hmm. always the best response. What she means by tangible aid and what I mean by tangible aid is directing people immediately to resources. But yeah. that can be helpful because we're talking about as a supervisor, directing supervisees to resources if they are struggling. But the way tangible aid can be helpful is if we also offer support and know that they're disclosing to us their self-injury for a reason, even a supervisee yeah. for a reason as a supervisor and being able to still offer them support. But like you had said, we're not their therapist and we're not right. their parent and we're not really their friend. There's that power dynamic, that power differential, I suppose, supervisor to supervisee. So I think that's a little bit trickier how we can support them emotionally while also directing them to services. And ultimately, we're responsible right. for the care that they're providing their clients because we're supervising them. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that is a, an important distinction 
the way that I would respond if a friend disclosed self-injury to me is different than the way that I would respond if a trainee who I was supervising disclosed it to me. And in both cases, I'd be very validating and supportive, but the kind of speed at which I would refer to resources would be a little bit different because in a friend context, I have more of that ability to be more of an emotional support because that's part of friendships in a lot of cases. Whereas with students or trainees, I want to be a person that they can reach out to and get in touch with, but I also want to draw a little bit more of a boundary that I'm not a friend, I'm not a therapist. And so it is a little bit different in that way in terms of those kind of more tangible aid referrals. And I think it is important, I should make the note that I don't think you want to go immediately to a referral, right? If somebody comes in and says, hey, I'm really struggling and you say, oh, sorry to hear that. Here's a list of therapists. It conveys, I don't really want to hear any more about this. Exactly. So I think there's a way to have a middle ground where you can empathize, can ask more questions about how they're struggling with that, what they want from you. And then can identify and say, you know, I'm so glad that you came to me with this. I really appreciate you trusting me with this information. I think this is going to be really important as we think about kind of your training and getting you the support you need as a person while also making sure that your clients and patients are getting the care that they need. And I even will say this explicitly to folks to say, you know, one of the things that's tricky about my role is that I have to maintain a little bit of distance where I can't actually be kind of a therapist or a friend. And so I'll just name that for folks so they know it's not about me not being interested, but it's about wanting to make sure they get the ethical support that they need. It's not just that I don't want to be their therapist, it's that it wouldn't be ethical for me to do that. Um, And it wouldn't get them the care and support that they need. How can we model that we are open to including people with lived experience of self-injury, not only within our clinical work, so treating individuals, but also within research and in teaching? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. So certainly in in teaching, I talked a little bit about kind of how I frame my syllabi and how I set up the expectations for conversations in class around how we talk about people with lived experience of psychopathology. I've also done some work to actually incorporate in our assigned readings, first person accounts, not necessarily for every diagnosis, because there's a lot of readings already in the class, but you know, on a very regular basis. So for instance, when we talk about suicidal thoughts and behaviors, I have students actually go to livethroughthis.org, which is a website uh, developed by Desiree Stage that has people's experiences who are suicide attempt survivors. And so that's actually an assignment in addition to their readings about suicide risk assessment from kind of a clinical and research perspective. And the feedback I've gotten from students is that that's really helpful both to give them some more context to some of the symptoms and experiences that they're reading about in the DSM or in a scientific paper, but also to give them perspective of what it's like to live with some of those mental health concerns. In my lab, it's you know, something that we've actually put into our lab manual. So we have a discussion in our lab manual about the fact that people wear lots of different hats, have lots of different experiences, and that that's okay, that's acceptable. There's some labs that have actually formed sort of advisory boards or other ways for people with lived experience to specifically contribute to research in that capacity. We don't have one specifically for folks with a history of NSSI in our lab. We do have one comprised of folks that are trans or gender diverse because that's an area that we're moving into. And as a cisgender heterosexual woman, I felt like it was really important to have, you know, not just me reading the literature about those folks' experiences, but to have that group as well. So I think that's something that people can do if they don't personally have lived experience and want to kind of build that into their research work. I know one area that has really gained momentum, and you mentioned individuals with lived experience of suicidal thoughts and behaviors, and we're talking about lived experience of non-suicidal self-injury and incorporating these perspectives in research. Can you paint a picture of what it might look like if a research study included an individual with lived experience? So what would their role be? How much involvement would they have? Would they need to be affiliated with that institution in which the research is being conducted, et cetera? Yeah, really, really good questions. So the most straightforward element of that that I can answer is that you definitely do not need to be affiliated with the institution that the research is happening in. Other than that, the roles really vary. Kind of the best practice and what is being recommended by agencies that are focused on what's often called patient-centered research or patient engagement research from a more medical perspective is the idea that people with lived experience should be incorporated at all phases of the research 
enterprise. When we talk about research, there's actually so many steps there from developing the original question, creating the protocol for the research study. Who are you going to recruit? Why are you going to recruit them? How are you going to recruit them? What types of measures are you going to ask them to fill out? How are you going to train your research staff? Once the data are collected, how are they going to be analyzed? How are they going to be shared? How are you going to make sure that the information that you gather from your participants actually gets back to the communities that those participants are a part of in a way that it's useful and informative and valuable? And so, you know, I think one of the criticisms, very fair criticisms of lived experience engagement and research to date from people with lived experience is that oftentimes people are asked to contribute once many of those decisions are already made. You know, when the, the study's already been designed, it's already been funded, they've already picked the measures, they've already kind of planned everything out. And then you ask a bunch of people with lived experience, what do you think about what we've already decided we're going to do? <laughs> and so I think it's important at whatever level you're able to add engagement, knowing that there's going to be lots of institutional barriers, lots of other kinds of restrictions and things that might make it hard to have someone involved throughout, to at least be transparent with folks about what you're asking of them in terms of their time and effort and what you're going to do with that information. Don't ask people to give you their time and their feedback if you're not actually going to listen to it, I think is an important <laughs> an important and what should be sort of obvious statement, but you'd be surprised. Maybe you wouldn't. Maybe you had already, <laughs> already expected it. And ideally, and this is something we're also fighting with kind of on a broader level, is to try to give people compensation or some kind of remuneration for their time and their effort. I know that this is something we've really struggled with, where folks who are contributing to the research process and aren't participants, there's often not a clear kind of line item to be able to pay them, for instance. That's something I ran into at my university where I can pay participants, I can pay staff, but if I have someone that's consulting and they're not a participant and they're not staff, then folks get mad if I try to pay them. So really for researchers, when you're applying for funding for research, to put a line item in to say, I need $1,000 to be able to pay the members of my advisory board or whatever it is. If you can include that up front, then you have that ability. And that feels a lot better to me than asking people to give me their time for free. There's also obviously opportunities to contribute to kind of the research outputs, like authorship on papers, on projects. And I think that's up to the individual person of how they want to, how much they want to be involved. You know, with our trans advisory board, we want to recognize that some people are much more out about their gender identity than others. And so what we've told everybody on the board is when we get to the point of publishing our data, we'll ask you if you want to be named explicitly or if you want us to just include you under the umbrella of members of the advisory board to recognize that some people might really want their name on there and some people might say, ah, that's not for me at this time. So I think meeting people where they're at, recognizing what, you know, what might be valuable for them to contribute in addition to just giving their time for our benefit. That's a really good practical recommendation for researchers that might be listening here. And I know we have a lot of people that listen that do have their own lived experience of self-injury. Let's say they have interest in contributing to research and clinical work in the area of self-injury. How would they get started? Where would they go? How would they find out about these studies? Yeah, super important question. And I wish I had like a single answer, like go to this website and it will tell you. We don't have that as of yet. So I think one of the things you can do is just find people whose work you find interesting and who seem to care about lived experience and reach out to them. You know, most, if not all faculty, if you just Google their name and their university, you'll be able to find their email address. If you want to stay local, you can look at universities near you. But now that things are a little bit more flexible remote, there's no reason why you couldn't necessarily participate remotely. There are some kind of centralized places where research studies are listed. So for instance, treatment research is typically listed on clinicaltrials.gov in the US. You can also look at agencies that are focused on what's called patient engagement or patient-focused research. In the US, that would be PCORI, which is the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, I think. And to see, for instance, who has research funding from that organization, because they're more likely to be thinking about 
engagement with folks with lived experience and reaching out to them. In Canada, there's a patient and partner engagement organization. I can't remember the exact name of it, but if you if you Google tri-council funding and patient partner engagement, you'll find it. And I think there's similar organizations in the UK as well. So trying to, to look at what those organizations are funding, what they're doing, and then getting in touch with researchers that are doing that kind of work. And I do think that psychologists and researchers incorporating perspectives of individuals with lived experience definitely models openness, openness to talking about it and, and engaging those who do self-injure at more than just a clinical level. Right. You know, I think certainly in our research work, sometimes it's easy to think that we incorporate lived experience because our participants have lived experience. But in a lot of research, particularly the kind of research I do, which is mostly quantitative methods, the participants are critical and they're in, the information they give us is limited by the questions that I'm asking them, right? So it might be that I'm getting really valuable information, but there could be entire concepts or constructs or experiences that I'm missing because they weren't part of my own experience or something that I read about in the literature. So I think it's important not to assume, well, I have my participants, so that's enough. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you need more than that. Such great points. Well, what would you advise those who have self-injured or who currently self-injure and want to become a counselor or psychologist or pursue a career in the mental health profession? Yeah. So I think certainly for past NSSI, I would give the same advice as I'd give to anybody else. Like, this is a great field. It's super challenging and rewarding. It's hard to get accepted to grad school. It's a hard slog to do a PhD or a PsyD to get through grad school, but it's rewarding. It's a great practice. Do it. For someone with current NSSI, honestly, it would be a pretty similar experience, but I would also highlight that there's a lot of things that are emotionally challenging about graduate training and about sitting with clients in their own pain. So I think in that case, I would just recommend that folks think about what they need to do to take care of themselves before they get into a position where they're working with clients on a regular basis. Now, that's not to say that If you've had thoughts about NSSI that precludes you from working with clients, it just means that you want to make sure you're in a space that you can take care of your own needs and also have that kind of emotional space to take care of your clients' needs. You know, grad school or training in in any kind of mental health profession is not designed to help you take care of your own mental health. It's designed to help you figure out how to take care of other people's mental health. So just recognizing that that's kind of a separate process that's also important before and possibly during your your training for that. Great recommendations. Very good. Let's say they're already in graduate school or undergraduate psychology program. We talked about when supervisors could ask their supervisees about self-injury, but when might it be wise for an individual to disclose their self-injury to a supervisor, like a supervisor, mentor, teacher, and when might it be wise to conceal it? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I think it depends a lot on what it is that you're hoping for as a result of those conversations. So, you know, in some contexts, it's I want or need some practical support or I need to get someone to give me an outside perspective on whether I'm doing okay in, in grad school or in my training. Sometimes it's I want to live consistent with with my values. You know, that's something that I've struggled with a lot at this point. My own disclosure doesn't serve me in any kind of practical sense, but it felt important to me to, you know, I felt like disclosure was very valuable and important and that people shouldn't be pressured to disclose when they don't want to, but that it's also valuable when people have the ability and interest to do so that it kind of models it for other people. So I think that's also something important to keep in mind. Once you kind of know what's motivating it for you, you can make those cost-benefit decisions for yourself. And that changes over time. It changes according to the person you're thinking about disclosing to. You know, so I think that that's, unfortunately, I can't give a really clear, like, in this case, do this, in this case, do that, because it's going to vary so much. But really thinking about what the ideal would be if you disclosed and it went really well, What's the worst case scenario if you disclosed and it went really poorly? And then vice versa, if I didn't disclose, what would be the benefit of that versus some of the downsides of that? And I don't recommend that to scare people (laughs) about the possible reactions, but it's better to be prepared and then to find out that someone reacts more positively than you thought than to not be prepared and be caught off guard. I also think it's important to consider that once you make a disclosure, the person or the context where you're disclosing, that information is then not entirely out of your 
or not entirely under your control in terms of redisclosure. So picking people or contexts where you either feel confident that they're not going to redisclose that information or that you're okay with that being redisclosed if that happens. And then just making sure to take care of yourself and get support in that process. You know, it can be a really stressful decision to try to make those disclosures. Ideally, if you have a friend, a family member, a loved one who you can kind of talk through that process with and maybe debrief after about how it went, even if it went really well, it can still be a very stressful, activating experience. So just being prepared for those things. Absolutely. Excellent recommendations. I'm sure people listening will have more knowledge now about (laughs) what to expect or potentially. So thank you for that guidance. Well, as we come to a close, based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to parents of children who have self-injured or self-injure? Yeah, you know, I think it's important to understand that if, if your child is self-injuring, they're struggling. And I can't tell you exactly in what way they're struggling because that differs for each child, but they're clearly struggling. And it's understandable that that could be really terrifying and upsetting for you as a parent because parents don't want their child to struggle. So I think it's important that that point to make sure that your child has the support that they need, but also to make sure that you as the parent have the support that you need, whether that's an individual therapist, an online support network, um, even just reading about the experiences of other parents can sometimes be helpful to know that you are certainly not alone in supporting a child through this. You know, I know that the um, Cornell Research Group led by Janice Whitlock has a lot of really great resources for parents, as well as the Healing Self-Injury book that I mentioned earlier. And I think similar to some of the other conversations we've had, really focusing on what your child needs from you and how you can best support them. I think the one thing that I would mention also for parents is to try to avoid overreaction or or really intense reactions. For instance, you know, if you start restricting your child's autonomy, start treating them differently, it might make it harder for them to tell you about their struggles in the future. So trying to to walk that fine line between not wanting to dismiss their experiences or underreact, but also not wanting to get so upset kind of in front of the child that then they feel like, oh gosh, I've done something wrong by telling my parents about this. I need to just keep it to myself, which is a really hard balance to, to manage. And that's why I think that support is really important. Yeah, it sure is. Uh, it sure can be hard to manage. Based on our conversation today, which you've already shared a lot about in this context, but kind of bringing it all together, what would you recommend to professionals, whether they're clinicians or researchers with or without lived experience of self-injury? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I try to think about for myself and try to talk about with other people is to know that people with lived experience both within the field as well as outside of the field, are paying attention. They're watching how you talk about these things. They're watching the way that we have these conversations and the way that we do our work and talk about our work. So I think trying to talk about these experiences in a way that you would if you if you knew that the person you were talking to or the person was listening had that experience. Because in many cases, that might actually be true. And it, at least for me, puts me in that more empathetic position of thinking really thoughtfully about how I communicate about these things. And to try to think about what it's like to be a participant in research or a client with these experiences not knowing how understanding the researcher is going to be, not knowing how understanding the clinician is going to be, and how scary that can be, especially for someone who's struggling with NSSI, which we know is highly stigmatized. We know people feel a lot of shame around. So trying to recognize that what feels very typical and normal and routine for clinicians and researchers might actually be really scary and stressful for people who aren't doing that day in and day out. You know, you are running a research study, you're running participants and sessions every day of the week. Each participant that's coming into your study, they're probably not doing lots of other research sessions every other day of the week. So starting from the position of they don't know what to expect. And same for clients. Even if they've been in therapy before, what your therapy looks like might be really different from the therapy they've been in. So starting from a place of, let me kind of set the expectations of what you can expect in terms of how I'm going to treat you, how I'm going to protect your privacy and your autonomy, and just going from there. Bringing it all together, lastly, based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to people with lived experience of self-injury? I think it's really critical to know that your experiences 
shape who you are and shape your experiences and that they don't have to define you or to define your future. There's help out there. There's lots of different types of treatments and different types of supports for people who struggle with self-injury. And you don't have to struggle alone and you don't have to struggle forever. I think that's important both just broadly, but also for people who are thinking about joining the field, that if you want to be a psychologist, if you want to be a therapist, you won't be alone in having that history of having struggled. That doesn't disqualify you from learning from your experiences, developing from them, and then using those experiences to help other people. So I think knowing that, you know, your struggle is real and it's valid and that it doesn't have to define who you are or who you become or what the rest of your life looks like if you don't want it to. And I think you are a living testament to that. And so I really appreciate you sharing your own and disclosing, at least for me to hear for the first time, your own history with self-injury and how now it provides such additional context to our conversation and the wisdom that you shared. So thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Victor. Thank you so much for having me. I really just feel very fortunate to be in a position where I can be having these conversations and be devoting some of my time and effort to this kind of work, you know, to really, it really feels like it's very important and that the field broadly is in a place where we can start to have these conversations. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, we might be having a different conversation about the level of stigma in the field and the level of fears of disclosure that then relative to what we're having now, because I think the field now is very different than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago as well. So very excited about the directions this is going and very grateful to get to talk about it with you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. It is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy, so if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741-741. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe, give us a rating, and tell your friends. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Doc Westers. For all things self-injury, follow ISSS on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.